Ladies and gentlemen, good morning. Scott Colborn here with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. How are you? How's your week been, huh? What's been going on? Have you had uh, had a good week? We had a little bit of a uh, little bit of snow and uh, clear skies now, and more snow coming up. With that current up-to-date weather forecast, here's Jim Shorney. Good morning. We have officially 13 degrees Fahrenheit in Lincoln. Uh, snow after 5 p.m. tonight. Chance of participation 80%. And uh, looks like uh, by tomorrow they're expecting 2 to 4 inches. Uh, Jim, with us in the studio also is somebody that we've been missing and Colleen's here. Colleen's here. <laughs> Hi, Colleen. Hey, good morning. The gang's all here. Yeah. Yeah. Nice hoodie. You know, I've been basically living in mine here for the last week, week and a half here. So no, I'm the only person here without a KZUM hoodie. We've got to do something yeah, about that. we got to do something about that. Maybe we'll crowdfund it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey, speaking of crowdfunding, we'd love to have you consider a donation to KZUM. And uh, our fundraiser is over, but there's still a few of you out there that would like to give that haven't given. And when you give, you receive. It's a metaphysical truth. Mm -hmm. And I posted about this uh, yesterday on my Facebook page. Uh, I've been living proof of that for many, many years. So if you'd like to make a donation, you can do so at 474, excuse me, 402-474-5086, extension 1. Or you can also do it online at kzum.org. Thanks to all the great people uh, that helped us raise just about $800 last week, and we can still raise a few few dollars more. That number again is 402-474-5086, extension 1, or kzum.org. We've got a great program for you today. We've got Charlene with the Capital Humane Society. Then we've got Lloyd Arbach, and he'll be talking about an upcoming parapsychological class that he's doing. And then we've got, it's been a long time, I can say repeat guest because he was a guest, but this is going way back, the aviation and science writer Jim Goodall. And uh, you, wanna, you don't want to miss this. This is going to be really interesting. Okay, without further ado, let's go to Charlene and the Capital Humane Society, and she should be right there. Hi, Charlene. Good, good morning. How are things at the Capital Humane Society? Things are going really well. We've had uh, volunteers in already helping us. Some of them were uh, providing socialization for our rabbits, so we had some very habit, uh, happy rabbits hopping around. Uh, it was very sweet to see, so we're very grateful for our volunteers. Okay, um, what fundraisers are coming up for the Capital Humane Society? We do have a dine-in fundraiser coming up. It is uh, Wednesday, March 13th, and that's at either Don and Millie's location. And if you mention Capital Humane Society, they'll donate 20% of your ticket. That is pretty cool. It's we'd, very, very generous. We'd love to have that happen. Okay, this is Charlene in the Capital Humane Society uh, cats and dogs for adoption. We're going to start with cats, and we've got the page open at capitalhumanesociety.org. Who's first? We're going to start with Augie. 
a very handsome guy looking really relaxed in his photograph there. He's about three years old, has long, fluffy fur, uh, just a cool cat looking for a family that has a place where he can hang out and be his sweet self. So Augie is looking for a great home. We will be open today and hope you'll stop by to meet him. Of course, my mind jumped straight to Augie Doggy, but this is <laughs> Augie Caddy. A beautiful cat. Augie, A-U-G-G-I-E. His picture is up at CapitalHumaneSociety.org. Augie is joined by... Lucky. And Lucky is a real sweet cat, just 10 months old, a neutered male, has short fur, mostly white with some black (laughs) patches. Very curious, looking out at the photographer there, wondering what's next, happy to pose and be adorable. So Lucky is hoping to be lucky today and to find a new family. Looks kind of like he stuck his head in a furnace vent pipe and then (laughs) pulled it back out with this black around his ears. (laughs) Really cute. And that great expression that was captured on Lucky's face, you want to you want to check that out, capitalhumanesociety.org. Get a load of Lucky. <laughs> Augie, Lucky, and? Next up is Randall. And Randall is very handsome. He has beautiful tabby markings. Uh, just a year old, a neutered male, a little bit on the shy side, so is looking for a nice, peaceful, and quiet home. Oh, what a gorgeous kitty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Could, I could just say, hey, hey, Randy, get me a beer out of the fridge. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think he'd do that. He's The look on his face is like, what? Are you serious? <laughs> He's that more of a lap warmer. Yeah. yeah <laughs> he, he wouldn't be getting me beer, except occasionally I do like a non-alcoholic beer. That's, that's great after I uh, do the lawn on a hot summer day. Well, sure. <clears throat> okay, we've got great cats, Augie, Lucky, and Randall. Capital Humane Society is where we've been looking for all these pictures. You can do the, the same. And better yet, go out and see them today and tomorrow. Here's Charlene with Hours Open. We are open at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center today and tomorrow from 11 to 530. It's time for Dogs for Adoption. We've got two really cute dogs. We have Baby Girl looking for a new home. She is about two years old, a shepherd pit bull mix, very smart dog, very picky about who she likes. So she needs somebody who will bring out the best in her, has plenty of time to provide her with training Mm -hmm. so she can be the best dog she can be. So only two years old. She's got a lot of life ahead of her yet. Absolutely. And she is just very intelligent. We'd love to have you take a look at Baby Girl. Her picture's up and a uh, description at capitalhumanesociety.org and love to hear from one of you this weekend or next week that you've gone out and and adopted baby girl. Okay, and her sidekick is? Lily, an eight-year-old pit bull, a spayed female. You can see in the picture there her tail is wagging so hard it's a blur. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, look at those ears. Yes, very alert, very enthusiastic, just wants to have fun, is looking for a home with people, again, who can provide her with some training and direction. She was uh, friendly with another dog. She is looking for a home with children that are um, 12 or older because she is very exuberant, um, but we know the right family is out there for Lily. This is a happy dog. Yes. Yeah. Okay, Baby Girl and Lily are dogs for adoption this morning. Take a look online at capitalhumanesociety.org 
or take a look in person today and tomorrow. Charlene, remind us again about those hours. Our Pylock Pet Adoption Center is open on Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 5.30. And when folks come out to see the uh, cats and dogs for adoption, what could they bring you if they wanted to, to bring something to donate? Uh, we can always use canned cat food. We go through a lot of the pate-style cat food, um, so that is a great thing to donate. We also do have um, information on our website about other items that you might consider, like towels and blankets. Uh, so we really do appreciate those items that people decide to donate. Okay, this is a, a chance to do good stuff and also to look at some great animals. Uh, CapitalHumaneSociety.org is the website. And you can go out and see these flying cats and dogs today and tomorrow. Charlene, thank you so much for all that you do on helping us connect with these wonderful animals. Thank you for your support. We really appreciate it. And folks, don't forget that uh, fundraiser at Don and Millie's. That's March 13th. We'll be talking about that in weeks to come. A fundraiser for the Capital Humane Society. Okay, make them the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. I'm Scott Colborn. And you're listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Next up is Lloyd Arbach. And Lloyd is the parapsychologist extraordinaire. In fact, he uh, bears the moniker Professor Paranormal. And he joins us from someplace out west. Hi, Lloyd. How are you? Okay, Scott. How are you? Thank you so much for asking. Uh, Doing really well. We've got the uh, snow cleared from the walks and drive. And we've got more coming tonight. Uh, have you folks had uh, some moisture yourselves? We've had a lot of rain, like a lot of rain. Uh, we're, we're certainly not going to be in a drought this year uh, here in California. And uh, <clears throat> a ton of snow in, Sierra, in the Sierra Mountains, too. Most people probably went up for skiing this weekend mm-hmm. in Lake Tahoe. Lloyd, I don't know. I want to talk about this class coming up, but I don't know if I've ever asked you this. Did you ever have, uh, growing up as a little boy, any experience that may be paranormal-related that really helped chart your course later on as an adult? Not that I know of. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. A few years ago, uh, Marilyn Schlitz, who at the time mm-hmm. was president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, um, she now is the <clears throat> dean of faculty at Sophia University. Uh, and she's been a researcher in parapsychology for a long time. So we had her speak, actually, at JFK University. And she talked about having um, really taken some, like eating, eating a toxic material as a very little kid and having a near-death experience. And she vaguely remembered it, but it was enough that it, she believed it's going to put her on that course. Well, you know, when I was three... This actually raised an issue for me, and I'm not even sure if this is this is what happened. But when I was three, my appendix burst, oh, and geez. I was in critical condition for three days, according to my parents, um, in the hospital for two weeks. So it's it's entirely possible that something like that may have happened to me as well. Uh, having had you know, have, there are near death experiences of little kids that we hear about once in a while. Mm-hmm. I just don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know what what really set me on the path was. Uh, comic books and the idea that human beings could become more than we think we are, you know, that what's, what we're told we are. So the idea that our potential is being limited 
especially by by science ignoring psychic abilities is kind of uh, something that's been on my mind since I was, I was very young. And it seems like we've all got um, an individual experience or at least a, a personal reinforcement of that being true, that we are much more than than what we all agree upon. Because, Lloyd, have you found the, the same thing, that when you talk with people uh, and you can kind of hunker down and, and everybody gets comfortable, that people come forward with these experiences? They talk about things that are simply judged to be extraordinary. Constantly. It's really interesting. Over the years, i found, you know, of course, I'm known more of a, as a ghostbuster than anything else, I think. But I've had people tell me all sorts of psychic experiences, but especially once they find out who I am and, and some of my books and such, they'll tell me their, their ghost experiences. And they'll sometimes, it's very weird, but I've sometimes been in situations where uh, people will, in front of other people, basically say, you know, I don't believe in this stuff. This stuff is, you know, you guys don't really have any proof or anything. So they'll pull me aside and tell me their ghost story. Oh, geez. They're just, af- they're just afraid, especially scientists are the, scientists and academics are the worst when it comes to this because they're afraid to admit even an interest in this subject um, when it comes right down to it because of the climate of prejudice in academia. Whereas I, I've also worked in and around the legal field for many, many years, and some many of the law firms that I've gone into and consulted with knew what I did else otherwise, and they would, right in front of each other, start talking about ghosts and psychic experiences. So they're not afraid of talking about it in front of each other. It's just the scientists themselves are afraid of admitting an interest, even, mm-hmm. let alone experiences. But you've taught at the collegiate level... You're the author of many books in the parapsychological field, and you've teamed up with the Rhine Education Center to offer Uh classes that people can take online. They can be any place in the world and join you live or uh, um, when their schedule allows. And I think these are such a great uh, offering. In fact, when I posted the announcement about this current one coming up, one of my Facebook Mm -hmm. friends came back immediately and said, "Um, I recommend these. I've taken his class before. So we've got uh, advanced field investigations coming up, and it starts February 25th. Right. Uh, right. This is an eight-week course. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of what people can expect? Well, the idea of the course is, it's, you know, I just finished a few months, a couple of months ago, teaching a an eight week, in pretty much basic field investigations course. So think of that as ghost hunting one hundred and one. Mm-hmm. This is this would be the one hundred and two or the two hundred and one, however you want to want to phrase it. And it really, you know, there are a lot of people out there who do investigations. Um, hobbyists and other people. There are people who are just interested in this subject who want to know what goes on. And at the basic level, there's there's plenty to cover, um, just what the phenomena is, what we think it is, a little bit of the history, talking a little bit about the equipment. It's a very, very basic level, but it really is so much more that one, one can do. So in this class, I'd be going into more about what we know about or think we know about apparitions and hauntings and poltergeists 
and specifically how to identify the phenomena in a case when somebody contacts you and then what to do about it if there's anything to do about it uh, in those circumstances. And then also talking a bit about the equipment. But one of the things that I really cover is working with clients. You know, it's uh, I can touch on this in the initial class. Uh, and, of course, a ghost hunter or investigator's best tool is the interviewing skills and listening skills that one can develop because you really have to kind of do that. You also have to be a good observer, uh, and that would include also understanding how ordinary things or even unusual natural phenomena can, mis- can, can put you in the wrong direction, cause you to mistake um, your conclusions to come up with a misunderstanding, and I do that by talking about the psychology of magic and mentalism, basically mm-hmm. how, what we've learned in that world about the psychology of perception, how our perception can be fooled, um, not necessarily intentionally, not by a fraud, but just by what goes on in the environment. And that's a big key element of this particular class. Uh, ESP, extrasensory perception, uh, PK psychokinesis, both of these come into play when one investigates ghosts and hauntings. I have to tell you, I am amazed when I see some of these TV shows or talk to some of these ghost hunters, how they don't see or don't, or or even just basically flat out deny that there's no ESP or PK involved in any of these cases. Uh, when you're talking about ghosts and hauntings, and especially and especially poltergeists, that's absolutely ridiculous. That's the very definition of a poltergeist. But you know, so I raised the question. One one question I would I've I've raised in this class will be, do ghosts have ESP? And the answer to that is yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, think about it. A ghost is basically a spirit or mind without a body. So they they have no physical eyes, no physical ears. How in the world do they see and hear you? Mm-hmm. How do they talk to you? You know, every spirit medium worth their salt talks about the fact that when they say they're hearing a spirit or hearing the spirit world or seeing a spirit, it's all via telepathy. It's all mind-to-mind communication. That's ESP. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the idea of ghosts moving things or affecting anything in the world around us, the very idea that a, a person without a body can move something is the definition of mind over matter. Mm-hmm. So uh, I... You know, I ended up in an argument years ago with someone who ran a major ghost hunting organization on, online, um, completely just saying that it was the weirdest thing. In their newsletter, they, I still have the newsletter, he said that psychokinesis doesn't exist, and all the investigations he's been on, <laughs> he's never seen any, any person who could move anything. And then he goes on to talk about how the ghosts in some of the cases move things. So here he is saying that PK doesn't exist. Then he says ghosts move things. So... He really, this is the problem that we find, is that people who watch the TV shows just don't get the basic concepts, mm-hmm. because all they're doing is m- mimicking what they see on TV and mimicking what they hear on TV. Uh, Colleen and, and Jim, Lloyd has got a great quote here in the syllabus. He says, a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing for field investigators. And so but I interpret that to be is that they watch a season's worth of programs, 
and then mm-hmm. they're seasoned, and they can go out and start doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. They call themselves professionals, too. And make statements like psychokinesis uh, isn't, yeah. isn't real. My God, I've, I've seen it. You have, you have too. You have. <laughs> yeah. I've late, seen it so many late. times, not just with Marty, but with Martin Caden, but with so many other people, too. Yeah. Um, week two has got this great quote again. Dealing with clients, living and dead. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you know, when it comes right down to it, <laughs> you know, I'm bringing off and bringing psychics and mediums into cases. That's one of the things I'm going to make a, a case for that. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it's not always easy to find a good psychic or medium. But when you're de- walking into a place, let's say you've got a family that says, you know, we moved into this house and this ghost is annoying us and wants us to move out and is insisting it's his house, you have... The living clients and you have the dead client because you have to really figure out what the dead client needs for that. You have to really, uh, you know, the resolution is going to come from communication. It's not going to come from some ritual you're going to do typically, unless you're going to scare the ghost out of the house. Uh, Week three, field investigation methodologies. Week four, the investigation of public haunts. Uh, Week five, applying the tools of the investigation from simple to technological to human. A week six psychology and field investigations. Is the client or witness psychologically disturbed, lying, or simply mistaken? A week seven is going to be a summary, hauntings continued, weighing the evidence, drawing conclusions. And then week eight, <clears throat> I think Lloyd is also a really important. Folklore, pop culture, and other investigator and researchers. What does folklore tell us about um, hauntings and ghosts? Well, folklore, which including a popular culture, has become our our folklore mythology. Um, It it convinces people that some things are dangerous, evil, bad. It basically puts us in a mindset to not look into the experience we're actually having, make assumptions. Mm-hmm. And it, when it comes, also when it comes to, you know, especially public places, you know, there's a lot of locations around the world that may feel bad when you walk in them. Uh, and that fall would fall potentially under our category of hauntings or residual hauntings. If something negative happened, and that negativity could be death, uh, murder, or that negativity could just be people having a really depressed time in their lives and leaving behind negative emotion. But it seems that the environment does record at least our emotional content of the living and occasionally records even events that play back in our heads. So... The folklore can actually impact that uh, because the emotions of the people who are going into that place, knowing that the place had a a massacre uh, back during the Revolutionary War or something like that, people might feel that and then really increase the fear. They get afraid of what they're experiencing. They leave more fear behind, and that can actually impact things. On the other hand, uh, Tony Cornell, who was a longtime researcher, uh, for the Society for Psychical Research over in England years ago when his book, uh, he had a book that's out still called Investigating the Paranormal 
great book, and he was a real great guy. But he told a story about uh, having investigating a haunted pub back in the 1960s in England. And they really didn't, in talking to the witnesses and everything and looking into the history, they didn't find much to the story, that there really wasn't a ghost there and there really wasn't much to it. So for fun that evening, you know, they everybody gathered all the witnesses around. They just had a lot of, a lot of beers, a lot of ales at night, and somewhere along the line they started spinning a ghost story that was a much better story, backstory, than what the pub already had. And to this day, that story they made up is the the ghost story people tell (laughs) as the actual history, ghostly history of this place. So you can change things with folklore. You can change things with storytelling. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's really important to look into the backstory of places, public places specifically. Uh, Lloyd, can can people navigate and find this course by going to RhineEducationCenter.org? That's one easy way to do it. They can also just go to Rhine, R-H-I-N-E dot org, and look for the education tab, and that'll take them to it. And, you know, mine is not the only class being offered this <clears throat> this time around. Also, John Cruth, who's the executive director, is offering one on research, on quantitative research methods. Um, so we... The, the, the center offers different kinds of classes. We, we're going to have other faculty coming on board as well, offering other classes going forward. And I want to mention also that really, if you read the background on the advanced ghost hunting class, it does say that there are sort of pre- prerequisites, but there's a number of them, including just you know letting me know um, that you have some background that you understand the basic concepts mm-hmm. of ESP and things like that. I'm, I'm just concerned. I had someone contact me who I really said, thought should not take the course for a grade because you can take it for a grade, which becomes part of a course flow if you want to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the majority of our students don't take a course for the grade, so they can just take any class, including this one, without any prereqs. The person who contacted me was someone who claimed to be a medium, but she didn't know anything about, you know, our definitions of, all, of apparitions and hauntings didn't know anything about um, the the process of doing an investigation or even about parapsychology. So I suggested to her that she's welcome to take the course, just don't take it for a grade, which is what I suggest to most people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lloyd, then how can people uh, reach or contact you with further questions? So my email is profparanormal, as in Professor Paranormal, profparanormal at gmail.com. Okay. Or you can find me on Facebook. Actually, the email is always the best way to go to contact me. Or you can leave a message at the Office of Paranormal Investigations line, which is 415-875-0175. Okay. Uh, continued uh, best wishes, Lloyd, to you and your crew. And thank you so much for this good work. I, I sure appreciate you. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for the interest. Lloyd Arbach, he's got a eight-week class coming up, and it's available through the Rhine Education Center, Advanced Field Investigations. This is, if you will, the, the second level. And if you want to uh, investigate this further, seek Lloyd out, and he will uh, tell you more about this as well as answer some of your questions as well. Um, the syllabus in and of itself 
you could print off and find a whole bunch of good, useful information just on the syllabus. Um, boy, it sure is great having Lloyd on the, on the broadcast. Yeah, it is. And what a great class uh, mm-hmm. coming up here. I hope people uh, get really interested in this. We need more education. We don't need people watching TV and thinking they're certified. (laughs) (laughs) That's a fact. Okay, uh, we'd like to thank you all again for your past donations. Uh, We've just wrapped up our spring fun drive. Now, one of the things I've been curious about, Jim, is why do we call it spring fun drive when it's not spring yet? Optimism. Optimism. Exactly. We are truly looking forward to... Um, to March, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So this spring fund drive, as of 10 o'clock this morning, we are $3,189 short of the goal of 35000 for the station. Please consider a one-time gift to help close the gap. 402-474-5086, extension 1, or go online at kzum.org. Stay tuned right there. Don't go anyplace because we've got a whale of a show coming up with aviation and science writer Jim Goodall. You want to talk about some secret advanced aircraft? This is the man. Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model bad. My bigger brother's name is Ray. And Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Far from the din of commercial culture and just this side of the abstract is a place I call Mesoterra. I'm Vic Valverde, your tour guide for an eclectic musical excursion on a program called Mesoterra. Saturdays, 12 noon until 1.30, right here on KZUM. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for 41 years of community radio. We'd like to thank everyone who stepped up with their financial support over the last week during our first fund drive of the year. Your contributions keep KZUM on the air, and this fund drive helps cover our expenses for the next several months. To everyone who gave, thank you. If you missed out, it's not too late, and you can now help close the gap on our goal. We now need about $4,000 to make the $35,000 goal by the end of February. Please help sustain KZUM by making your contribution now at 402-474-5086, extension 1, or kzum.org.
Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena, and it's sure great to have you with us. We've got uh, sunny to partially cloudy skies in Lincoln, Nebraska. And uh, what's it like in your neck of the woods? I haven't looked at the listener map, but uh, we typically have people listening from all over the world. So uh, hello to you, no matter where you're at. It's great to have you here. Our guest this morning is actually, according to my records, a return guest. But it's been almost 25 years since I last talked with him. In 1994, the Fordian Research Center sponsored Exploring Unexplained Phenomena Number 4, a conference that drew people from all over the world, both speakers as well as registrants. And Jim Goodall came to Lincoln, Nebraska, and gave a paper on secret aircraft at Groom Lake, Area 51. So he had already raised um, lots of interest in the aviation and science community for his books, his personal um, right there reporting. Let me give you some background on Jim. He served in the U.S. Air Force from 1962 to 1997. Mr. Goodall, thank you, sir, for your service. He's the former associate curator of the Pacific Aviation Museum in Pearl Harbor, and he was associated with the Museum of Flight in Seattle as a restoration manager on a de Havilland Comet. He was a personal friend of Ben Rich, now, you may have heard that name before. Who is Ben Rich? The former president of the Lockheed Skunk Works. And we'll talk about that relationship here. Concurrently and today, some of the friends and colleagues that he counts would be Bob Lazar and John Lear. Jim Goodall is the author of over 20 books, including the famous Lockheed SR-71 Blackbird, a book that came out in 2017, the U.S. Navy's Fast Attack Submarines, Volume 1, a pictorial history of the B-2 Spirit Stealth Bomber, and earlier books on the SR-71 Blackbird and the F-117 Stealth in Action. Let's welcome back after 25 years Jim Goodall to the broadcast. Hi, Jim. Hey, how's it going? I can't believe it's been 25 years, but uh, when, when you look back, for some reason, my mind is still in the 1990s. <laughs> well, I just told I'll my... It, I'll make it... Yeah, go on. I just told my, my friend Jim off mic here that 1994 doesn't seem like 25 years ago. No, it doesn't. Now, Jim, like it was just yesterday or last week. Yeah, go on. You've you've got a really interesting uh, career. Did did you when you were a little boy growing up? Did you ever have an ordinary or an extraordinary experience that, in some way, pointed you towards what you might be doing later as an adult? 
When I was, uh, I grew up in the Bay Area. Uh, I'm from uh, the Mountain View, Los Altos area. I left there in 62. I haven't been back since to, to live. But in, uh, during the Korean War, uh, we are living in San Jose. I was about, I, was, I think I was five, maybe six. Uh, I'd already gone to bed, but it was uh, still light out. And my dad came into the room and said, there's something coming, and I think you should see it. So we went outside, and over the Coast Mountains, heading to Travis, were not one, not two, but 24 Convoy B-36s. And it was with yeah, it was that experience that more or less burnt my love for aviation into my brain. Mm-hmm. And so in 1962, I believe, then you joined the U.S. Air Force. Yeah, I was a. <laughs> I got to laugh at it now because I have a grandson that's going down the same road. I was a juvenile delinquent. Um, in high school, I either got A's or F's. College, I got straight A's. But I was uh, on my 17th birthday. I was uh, told either to shape up and fly right, which I knew probably wouldn't happen. Uh, go, you know, go to juvenile hall till I was 18 as an incorrigible youth. Today, I'd be called spirited. Uh, or go into the service, and there was only you know there was only one option. That was the Air Force. I didn't want to sleep in a tent. Uh, I actually volunteered to go to Vietnam seven times, and they sent me to Alaska instead. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's what you get. <laughs> I've, had, I've had an inter- yeah, I've had an interesting life, and never in my wildest dreams did I ever think I'd become an expert on the Blackbird. But I saw my very first one on March 10th, 1964, at Edwards. This is before it was made public, before the you know the the public actually saw it, and I've never been the same. Mm-hmm. And I've and I've had a passion for for spooky airplanes and Area 51 and things that go bump in the night. You know, since I was about five or six. Uh, you've you've also taken time to write. Is it now uh, 22 or 23 books? Now I'm working on book 26. 26. Wow. Uh, book, book 25 is a pictorial history on the Virginia and Seawolf class fast attacks. 160 pages, all color, uh, from Sheffer. Same with my B2 book and my new Blackbird book. And then my, my uh, 26th book is on the Ohio class fleet ballistic missile submarines and arsenal boat. Mm-hmm. And, and as an Air Force guy, I... I've been on 19 different submarines, which should be kind of a record for an Air Force guy. <laughs> you like getting your feet wet at times, huh? Well, I, I, uh, I've always pushed the envelope a little bit uh, in my life, so I don't... Uh, uh, it's just... It, I like machines. Someone, I had a friend of mine say, Jim said, why are you doing things on submarines? I said, they're black, they're stealth, and they're deadly. No different than the F-117, no different than the B-2 or the F-22 or the F-23, the F-35. They're low observables, they're war machines, or actually peacekeeping machines. And I just find them fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's... This is... Now, you have... You have uh, yeah. Go ahead, sir. I'm also, I, I'm also, I'm also you know... I, trains planes and automobiles i mean i have i have a collection of double diesel and uh turbine uh, union pacific all in ho 
I have uh, literally have all all the big, the big heavyweight uh, diesels and turbines. So it's a machine. I love machines, and I lo- and and I and as an American taxpayer, I I figure if you know, I need I have the right to know if something is not classified. I have the right to know what it is, where it came from, who built it, and that's what I've and that's what I've done most of my life in digging up stuff on on Area 51. I was the first uh, civilian, if you want to call it that, to photograph the F-117 at the fence line. I was with John Lear, and when the first F-117 went, uh, flew over me, I was shaking so I was trembling so bad that out of 36 exposures, only two weren't blurred. Hmm. Well, there's, there's a, uh, you've already given us uh, a number of programs right there to unpack. When, when you first saw the, uh, the SR-71 Blackbird uh, and you said that your life changed, as you began to investigate that plane and its technology, did it raise any questions in your mind about either the guys in research and development with their white coats that are coming up with cool stuff, or are they borrowing part of the technology, quote-unquote, from someplace else? Well, it, it, it's a hard thing to nail down because there's so much secrecy surrounding what goes off in the desert. But I have a couple quote, direct quotes to me from, from people who know. One of them is Ben Rich. Ben R. Rich was the, uh, the president and general manager for the Lockheed Skunk Works after Kelly Johnson was retired. And in my last conversation with Ben, and we talked once a quarter for over 25 years. I have no idea how I got on his, on his good side. But if I didn't call him, he called me. And I could call him at ADP. June, who was was his secretary, she'd recognize my voice. He says, says, Mr. Goodall, just a second, I'll put you, I'll connect you with Ben. And now Ben would, could put me on speakerphone and be a, be a whole room of engineers in his office. But just before he passed away, I was talking to him at USC Medical Center. And he said, said Jim, we have things out in the desert that are, that's, 50 years beyond what you can comprehend. Not what you think you can build in 50 years, but what you can comprehend. And if you see movies like Star Trek or Star Wars, we've been there, done that, or decided it wasn't worth the effort. Now, this was in, what, 96 when he passed away. In In 1986, in a letter response from the late John Andrews from Testers, who was one of my dearest friends. John had written uh, Ben and said, Ben, do you believe in UFOs? Now, there are two categories, both man-made and extraterrestrial. Mm -hmm. And in in a June 86 letter, in his his own handwriting on his corporate letterhead as president of the Lockheed Skunk Works, Ben said, both Kelly and I are firm believers in both categories. We refer to ours as unfunded opportunities and the <laughs> underlined the U, the F, and the O. They said, but beware, there are people out there that will, do, that will lead you astray or could do you harm. 
So, so I've been I've been digging into that you know forever. Um, and to quote Jodie Foster's character in Contact, "If we're the only ones, what a waste of space." Yeah. And then in interviewing uh, for a potential book in Area 51, I tracked down a gentleman who was an SR-71 pilot. He lives in Lynchburg, Tennessee. His name is Dave. I don't know if I'll give his last name, because I don't want people to bug him. But I asked him, I said, Dave, do you believe in UFOs? He said, absolutely, positively do exist. I said, will you explain? He said, sure. On a nighttime mission out of Kadena, Okinawa in 1972, which was the height of the, of the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. It was a night training mission. He said he was about 78,000 feet, about 2.7 Mach, three-quarter moon. He's going straight and level. He said he's, he got a glint of a metallic craft about five or 6,000 feet above him and about five miles away. So he gets on secure voice and he calls Kadena. Do we have another bird up here? He said, nope, you're up there by yourself. And he said, no, I'm not. And all of a sudden his, his backseater, his RSO, uh, piped in and said, hey, Dave, I think we have company. And he said, yeah, I'm going to go take a look. So he, he advanced the throttles. He uh, never took his eye off the object and he's about a 10-degree bank. He starts climbing and uh, accelerating to get up to alt- the same altitude and then angling towards the the craft, whatever it was. He figured when he was about a mile or two away and almost the same altitude, this thing took off and left him in the dust. He said that he estimated that uh, it passed, it left him at about Mach 8 to Mach 10. Gee, many Christmas. Uh, and it... He lost track of it between 180 and 200,000 feet. Because that's not, that was 1972. In 1982, a very dear friend of mine who's an air traffic controller at the Bay Area in Oakland, California, reported a to to Beale an, an, a manned air-breathing craft going through controlled airspace. They estimate the speed to be uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 8,000 miles an hour. They called Beale because this thing had priority over everything. And the only airplane that has priority over the SR-71 is Air Force One. Air, you know, then the SR-71 would be just below that. Well, this craft, whatever it was, had priority in the airspace over everything. So they called a uh, they called Beale, a full bird colonel, and a young captain came to the Bay Area Tracon. Uh, the colonel was interviewing the uh, the general manager at that, that the Bay Area Tracon, and the, the, the captain was talking to my buddy Bob, his name Bob Garrow, 28 years as air traffic controller. And the captain uh, told Bob Garrow, said, Mr. Garrow, said, you don't know what you're looking at. And he went nuts, and he said, look, buddy boy, I've been controlling high-speed, spooky airplanes my entire life. He said, I've been doing this before your dad went out on your first date with your mom. So don't give me this bull that I don't know what I'm doing. And just then, the, the colonel got wonder what was happening. He came into uh, Bob's area and said, no, Mr. Carroll, Mr. you don't understand. You didn't see a thing. With that, Bob you know, could, you know, could agree with that. 
couple of years later, I'm in, I'm, I'm up in the Bay Area, and, we're, and Bob didn't know what my passion was, spooky airplanes, and he told me about it. So this is 1962, I, I mean, correction, 1982. Something went through his airspace at a at uh, at Mach 12. So to go back to Ben Rich's conversation I had with Ben uh, before he died, of course I couldn't have it after he died. We were talking about John Andrews and the Tester model company. And Ben said, I'm disappointed in John's Aurora model, the XR7 Penetrator. I said, why is that? He said, well, a Mach 12 liquid methane fueled airplane would have to have an internal volume at least four times what the model has. So if it took off from the test site, he would never see Area 51. If it took off from the test site, it would run out of gas by the time it hit Pasadena. So this is Aurora. Not only yeah, not only did uh, did Ben tell me how fast it went to court to more or less verify what Bob Garrow said when they were tracking an object coming out of the desert southwest. Uh, it just, you know, it just, it just added one more, one more thing saying, yeah, we do have an Aurora. Mm-hmm. Jim, the, the, the pilot that first talked about his experience uh, out of Okinawa with the SR-71 Blackbird, uh, he's at about 78,000 feet, and he's cruising along at a pretty good clip. He mm-hmm. and the backseat guy both see something. Um, they try to confirm it. Um, they're told from their, their ground operatives that there's nobody else up there. But they can, Correct. Th- but they can see this. And so Absolutely. They, they put the throttle down. This is um, one of the most powerful aircraft that we've ever developed. This thing is climbing to the same altitude um, you use as this unknown object. left them in the dust. It accelerated Correct. and was... So the reason why I, again, pose this to you and rehash this is that you're considered to be a guy that has his finger on a lot of exotic craft. In More or less, yeah. In, in 1962, to your knowledge, was there anything else that we produced or that another foreign power produced? That could beat the Blackbird. The there isn't there isn't a foreign entity in the world that could beat American ingenuity. Uh, the communist country, you know, the you know the former Soviet Union. You know, they, you didn't you didn't play outside the box. You didn't you didn't color outside the lines. You know, you had a you had a specific thing that you were required to do, and and. The best case, it was mediocre. Ben Rich told me once that he could give the drawings, all the specifications, all the manuals, all the hard tooling to the to the Russians to build an SR seventy one, and they probably Ben said they probably couldn't even start the motors. It's it's American ingenuity that has that has brought. The, that, that brought the Blackbird, you know, to the world. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the same ingenuity that brought us the F one seventeen, the B two, uh, the uh, the original Wright brothers flyer. 
it wasn't it wasn't European technology. It wasn't it wasn't Russian or Soviet uh, technology. It was good old American ingenuity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim, to, to now, pose just, it just, uh, just yeah. a little bit differently to you, then uh, when this object left that blackbird, quote unquote, in the dust, uh, do you think that that object was ours or theirs? More importantly. I mean, the pilot in that Blackbird said he th- he thought it was probably theirs, meaning extraterrestrial. Well, yeah, his his initial thought when he when he saw the object is that there was another SR seventy one flying right uh, training or you know, training mission. That's what he, that's what his first thought was. And when, and when they were told him that no, you're up there all by yourself, that's when he went to you go take a look. Now he retired. Uh, Dave retired in eighty or eighty-one from the Air Force uh, as a lieutenant colonel. And generally, those guys who have real high security clearances generally, if if you're going to continue working after you've retired from the Air Force, what do you do? Well, the logical step would be go to work for one of the defense contractors or somebody like that. Dave became the facility manager at Area 51, and that's the main reason I went to interview him. And he said that he was there for five years. Uh, he's the one who got the F-86s for chase. He did chase against Have Blue. He went. He flew chase with Tacit Blue uh, and, and other stuff. And, he, you know, he got to know everybody, and he started He started asking. He said, Has, have Boeing, Lockheed, uh, uh my mind just went blank. McDonald Douglas, anybody, any of the aer- aerospace manufacturers of, of the uh, early 1970s, did anybody fly something that could fly at Mach 12? And it, and the answer from everybody was no. Nothing was nothing of that with that capability was ever flown out of Area 51. So uh, he just yeah, he he said. I, I chased a UFO. It left me in the dust. Mm-hmm. Jim, let's come back to this. Um, I'm going to take the top of the hour break. And uh, what does a guy like you do for for fun? Uh, yeah, well, my wife and I went out dancing last night. Cool. I love to dance. Rock and roll, funk, disco, country, western, uh, top 40, uh, you know, 40 big man that and uh i used to be a, an avid modern builder and i think that's how i i got uh, uh linked up with you back in the 90s uh, my friend uh tom long who lives in papillion mm-hmm. uh, he's i think he's the one who uh, asked me to you know to you know, if i was interested in speaking at your forum back in 95 mm-hmm. and and I and I like I like fast cars and motorcycles, yeah. <laughs> planes, trains, and automobiles. That just sort of rounds me out. I had a uh, I had a Harley for forever. Finally got rid of it after I laid it down coming back from Sturgis here in 2013, and uh, went out and got myself a Grand Sport Corvette. So so I'm a happy guy. Cool. I have a wonderful life. I have a wonderful wife, and I live in a beautiful part of the world. It's a little bit hot here in Tucson in the summer, but 
I have a pool and air conditioning, so I don't care. <laughs> okay, Jim, stay right there. We'll be right back. This is Jim Goodall, aviation and science writer, uh, now working on, as he said, book 26. Uh, he's written some pretty important books on uh, exotic aircraft. We've got more conversation coming up about ours and theirs right after this. Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from family-owned and operated Butheris Mason and Love Funeral Home at 40th and A Streets in Lincoln, offering services that allow families to plan ahead according to personal wishes, chapel facilities to accommodate all faiths, and grief support materials for the family following a service. More information is available at 402-488-0934 and online at bmlfh.com. And by... The Haymarket Farmer's Market, thanking its patrons and vendors for this past season. Vendor inquiries for the 2019 season at 402-435-7496 and lincolnhaymarket.org. We are incredibly grateful to every listener who contributed during our recent February fun drive. Now we're asking those of you who missed out or never got around to it to do your part. Because today you will make all the difference in closing the gap on our goal of raising the necessary $35,000 we need by the end of the month. Please contribute now at kzum.org or by calling 402-474-5086, extension 1. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. It's great to have you with us. If you'd like to contribute to the KZM Radio Spring Fund Drive, we are about uh, $3,000 and some change short of our overall station goal. And please consider a one-time gift to help us close that gap. You are the reason that we're on the air right now. This is listener-supported radio. Call us at 402 474 5086, extension 1, or make your donation online at kzum.org. Our special guest, again, after a way too long a, a absence, is the <coughs> aviation and science writer uh, Jim Goodall. And Jim, you related uh, a story to me a long time ago that, if I remember correctly, you and Ben Rich were working out a deal or a proposition that you were going to do a videotaped affidavit of Ben Rich where he talks about his knowledge of not only secret aircraft, but 
recovered, captured, donated extraterrestrial craft that wouldn't be released until after his death. It, was that accurate? Yes, I had. Uh, when Ben found out that he had esophageal cancer, you know, he knew his time was short. And I had, and he was just finishing up his book with Leo Janos, uh, his uh, his time at the his Skunk Works book. And I I asked Ben formally, and I think uh, Michael Schratt has a copy of the letter I sent him, uh, sent to Ben. And I and I asked Ben, I said, would you be willing to do a taped interview with me, no holds barred, but I. And I, but I won't release it until after your death. And he agreed to that. But he said, first, I ha- we have to get the book with Leo Janos finished, promoted, and out the door. And unfortunately, and, and I, he said, this will, this would be. You asked the question. I'll, I'll, I'll answer the question. Mm-hmm. And he was so he had indicated he was more than willing to sit down and and talk about things that go bump in the night and unfortunately he had the nerve to die on me <laughs> so i was i was very very disappointed i was i was looking forward to it it was during a difficult time in my life and of course a difficult time in Ben because he was dying from uh, cancer but it never happened but the fact that the fact is it we were starting down that road and he had agreed uh he just died too soon mm-hmm Jim, the reason why I wanted to bring this up again, and your insider knowledge, if you'll permit me to say it that way, is that the closed-minded skeptics always show up and ask us for evidence. Uh, if, If some UFOs are real structured craft from elsewhere and extraterrestrials that are not from this earth, show us the evidence. So... I think it's so important for people listening to understand that the man that was in charge of the most exotic aircraft that we could build was stating categorically that some UFOs are indeed not from here. Is that a fair summation of of Ben Rich. Absolutely, absolutely, and and, and again, his quote on his letter to John Andrews: "Both Kelly and I are firm believers in both categories, and mm-hmm. those two categories that John outlined were man. You don't know what if you see something in the air and you can't identify it, whether it's an airplane or bird or whatever. It's a, it's an unidentified flying object, right?" But I also I also believe just based on uh, talking with the SR seventy one pilot who had one leave him in the dust comments by Ben Rich uh, and comments from my dear friend John uh, not John uh, Lear but uh, Bob Lazar I met Bob before he went to work out in the desert he he was in you know, he was in the uh, Las Vegas area, he'd been going through an interview process. He'd been with Sandia, uh, I think it was Sandia uh, Labs, and or Los Alamos, one of the two. And he said, I had just photographed the F-117. This is, it would be uh, 88. This is before it was publicly released. And he's, 
and I it was out. It was we got back to John Lear's house about uh, nine thirty at night. Uh, the photo mat. This is before digital photography. The photo mats were closed, and I was shooting. I was shooting print film. And John Lear said, oh, "I got a friend of mine coming over here in about ten minutes. Uh, I think you'll enjoy meeting him." Well, this person that uh, was coming over was Bob Lazar. And Bob told me when I told him what I had, he said, well, I have a C41 processor at home because I process photos for real estate agents. He said, let's go to my house and process your film. So we jumped in his car and we're heading over to West Charleston. And Bob said, you know, I feel sorry for Lear. I said, why is that? He's such a, such a famous aviation family and the guy believes in UFOs. He said, I'm a nuclear physicist. If I can't if I can't prove it mathematically or, or touch it, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't exist. Well, a year later, uh he comes out, you know, with just a uh, his voice altered and a silhouette talking to George Knapp about working on reverse engineering of alien spacecraft. Mm-hmm. He was not a firm believer. He matter of fact, he ridiculed and felt bad for John Lear for believing in UFOs when, in fact, the job he got out in the desert was you know, that to uh, reverse engineer the propulsion system. Now, he was he said he was hired by Edward Teller. And one of the important uh, aspects about everything that Bob said that he did, his name is in the, the directory at, at uh, I think it's Los Alamos. His name is in the directory of Los Alamos with the phone number that he gave George Knapp. Also, the room number he gave George Knapp. And the guys that worked in his lab, what their names were, was in this book. He also had a 300-mile-an-hour, quarter-mile jet dragster. (laughs) And George went to Albuquerque, uh, went through the uh, uh, microfish uh, back issues of when Bob said that he was he was written up, and sure enough, here's a picture of Bob standing in front of his jet-powered car. I think it was a Lamborghini uh, shell on it, and it, the headline was uh, "Los Alamos uh, scientists drives a car at 300 miles an hour" or something along those lines. So Bob is Bob is real. Bob's story has never has never changed. He's never you know, said things that he. Um, he's never embellished on what he's what he's said over the years, and even when it was to, it would have been to his benefit to fudge a little bit, he didn't. I mean, I I have always believed that Bob Lazar is who he says he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, even when people say, "Well, uh, he has no proof," well, uh, at one time everybody believed the world was flat. Yeah, one time that he, uh, everybody thought that you could never exceed the speed of sound. Uh, so it it was a point in time where where you know he was animate, adamantly against and didn't believe in UFOs at all. And a year later, he comes out saying, "Well, guess what I was working on." Now, Ed, he said Ed, Edward Teller is the one who interviewed him when Edward Teller had been questioned as to his knowledge of Bob Lazar, he made no comment. If Bob was a fraud, which he's not, 
Edward Teller and the other people that uh, were part of his hiring process would have said, the guy's a fraud. I've never heard of him. But what they did is they had no comment. You can neither confirm nor deny the existence of classified information or classified, you know, anything classified. So by them, not. If Bob wasn't part of the work at S4, then why didn't they say he was a fraud? Because he's not. Another another gentleman is a retired uh, E8. Uh, he now lives in uh, near Dayton, Ohio. He was the, the one of the very first enlisted guys on the F117 program. He was at Area 51. I think their their pass or their their security badge was good for virtually everywhere on the te- you know in within the Nevada test site. And he and a couple other guys were had a Humvee and I was bored and it was you know. I guess the airplanes weren't flying or they were down from maintenance or whatever. They were driving around the, the Papoose Range, which is the backdrop to Area 51, and they came across a dry lake bed, which is Papoose Lake, and they were out of their vehicles, and they were just looking around. They wondered why this road, and again, it was a dirt road, went to where it was at. And he said, out of nowhere came a, a handful of guys all in black with weapons, challenging them, saying, what are you doing here? Let me see your ID. So he sent my ID, and I said, uh, I said, you guys should leave right now and don't come back. You're not welcome here. Now, this this was a guy who uh, knew nothing about Papoose Lake, knew nothing about S4. The exact same location that Bob said S4 existed is where these guys came from nowhere, came out from nowhere to challenge the, these guys that were on the uh, the on out, you know, sightseeing around the test site. And they, and my, my friends said they have no idea where they came from. There was no vehicles. They were just, all of a sudden they were there. So that sort of adds, that, that just adds a, a little bit more to Bob's story mm-hmm. about where he was, you know, where, where he was located. Jim, there's a new documentary film out about Bob Lazar. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. I know, uh, Jeremy interviewed me uh, when he was working on it, and it was last year, a couple of years ago. And we spoke, I think we spoke for about three three to four hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't seen it. I have, because I've known Bob for over 30 years, uh, I didn't feel it was, I'll get it eventually. And I'm, 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 I'm expecting uh, Jeremy to send me a copy of the, uh, the program. Mm-hmm. But every, I, I I lived and breathed being a friend of uh, Bob Lazar from before he went to work out in the desert, uh, and I'm you know, I'm still friends with him today. Yeah, I've seen the documentary he's, uh, he's, film, and I I was I was impressed. I I learned more about Bob Lazar, and I uh, I've been Jim. I've been in this since 1974. So I've got a historical appreciation for when Bob Lazar says uh, that he was really reluctant to enter into a dialogue about this because uh, there was really nothing in it for him in this UFO field except the, uh, yeah. the criticism, the bad-mouthing, the disparagement that he endured for so long. 
absolutely. I mean, he, he said if he if if he could go back in time, he wouldn't have come out. He wouldn't have come out of the dark. He said it's been it's just been nothing but a a, a pain in his side or pain in his butt uh, since. And he, again, he's he's gotten a lot of notoriety. Jeremy offered to give him a percentage of his of his net on the documentary, and Bob turned him down. I really don't want to be. I I don't want or need any of the money from this. I'm not in it for the money. Now that's very very telling. When when you have the, an opportunity to make some serious money, I I don't believe he's hurting at all uh, where he's at today, but. He had, he had a chance to, you know, earn some serious money, and he he turned it down because it wasn't what it wasn't him. He wasn't in it for the money. He he went out. He went public primarily to save his butt. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot. Of, there's there's people in this world that uh, will do you harm. This is, this is for Ben Rich. He said, "So beware." And I think the, I think the long knives were out for him, but he also stated in one of his interviews with George Knapp, if something happens to me, I didn't commit suicide. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, he didn't say it quite like that, but that that was the implication. So I think the world I think the world of Bob Lazar. I, I think he's uh, he's who he says he is, and his story has never changed. Mm-hmm. I want people to see the documentary film, so I don't want to talk about it in detail, but I do want to mention that it was uh, almost comical or absurd that Jeremy and Bob at one point are talking and they decide that they want to talk about something that may be uh, uh, beyond secret. So they take their phones and they walk away and put their phones over maybe, you know, 30, 40 feet away on the ground so that nobody mm-hmm. possibly could activate their phones as a listening device. And they have this conversation. And it may or may not have been about the exotic propulsion system and the, the type of perhaps fuel for this. The the next the day, element one fifteen. Yeah. The next day, Bob Lazar's um, United Nuclear is basically raided, and there are people from um, multiple agencies swarming all over the building, looking at computers, records, looking inside cabinets. <laughs> it was almost comical. Uh, if if there's nothing going on here, folks, then why all the the secrecy? Absolutely, and and you know there's there's been there's been a, a concentrated effort to discredit Bob. Well, he uh, legal uh, brothel. It was a legal business. He was putting a communication system in. So what? Um, yeah, he has. I don't know. I, every everything everything about you know, people trying to slam Bob's are I don't believe. Him. What is what is the reason for not believing him? 
Now he's you know his story hasn't changed. He's you know he's he's what he's said. Uh, it does explain some of the, the phenomena we see. SR seventy one. That something's out there. He validates you know what Ben Rich wrote and said validates what uh, Bob Lazar said. And we and we're an insignificant solar system in an insignificant galaxy on the edge in an insignificant corner of the galaxy. Right, I, I, correction, the universe. And there's, I'm a volunteer at Tit Peak National Observatories here in Tucson, where they have 24 uh, telescopes. Uh, one of them, the 2.1 meter, uh, for five years, Caltech was using it for exoplanet discovery. And they, were, you know, they identified and found over 8,000 planets, certainly stars, some of them with multiple. So to, to think that we're, we're, we're the only ones is absurd. Even Carl Sagan back in the 70s, I think it was the 70s, said they figured, he estimated just by the, the sheer number of galaxies and the, the sheer number of, of stars in, in the average galaxy, that the odds are that there was probably anywhere between a billion and two billion planets in the universe that would could sustain life as we know it. Mm-hmm. This is Jim Goodall, aviation and science writer, author of books like The Lockheed SR-71 Blackbird, The SR-71 Blackbird, The F-117 Stealth, author of about 26 books. We'll take our bottom-of-the-hour break. We'll come back and talk about... Um, the old and the new Area 51, and how Jim has got personal knowledge of that because he may have gotten closer than anybody that I've ever talked to <laughs> that hasn't actually <clears throat> been stationed or working there to uh, Area 51. We'll have that conversation uh, right after this. And before we go to that break, folks, again, uh, we appreciate you so much as listeners the Exploring Unexplained Phenomena broadcast is the world's longest-running paranormal talk radio program at 34-plus years now. A lot of you folks have been listening for months or years, a few of you since that original broadcast in 1984. We appreciate you. In turn, please do consider supporting KZUM Radio with a listener donation, a.k.a you, the listener. You can do so by calling us at 474-5086, extension 1, that's area code 402-474-5086, extension 1, or online at kzum.org. Jim, we want to thank somebody here that just, uh, in fact, did that, made a donation, and who is that? Yes, we have Marsha in Michigan. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marsha. And she said, uh, keep up the good work. Scott Colborn. What a, what a show. She uh, called you, know, you out by name. If you're, a, if you're a fan of exploring unexplained phenomena and things that go bump in the night, spooky aircraft, this is a great program for you today mm-hmm. with aviation and science writer Jim Goodall. Uh, please help support our vision and help us continue. And we appreciate that very much. We'll be right back with more conversation with Jim Goodall right after this.
Hey, the voice of the blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for This Week in Lincoln comes from the Bourbon Theater, Duffy's Tavern, Crescent Moon Coffee, Meadowlark Coffee, and the Zoo Bar. This is live music coming to stages This Week in Lincoln. On Saturday, February 16th, Sean Holt and the Teardrops play Bodega's Alley at 9 p.m. The Lincoln Celtic players start at Meadowlark at 7 p.m. And Blues Project plays the Zoo Bar at 6, followed by Plaque Blague at 10. That's live music happening This Week in Lincoln. Far from the din of commercial culture and just this side of the abstract is a place I call Mesoterra. I'm Vic Valverde, your tour guide for an eclectic musical excursion on a program called Mesoterra. Saturdays, 12 noon until 1.30, right here on KZUM. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Next week's guest is Rosemary Ellen Guiley, UFOs and the ET Presence. Two weeks from today is Nancy Ryan's Awakenings from the Light and 12 Life Lessons from a Near-Death Experience. And four weeks from today, Mark, excuse me, Dan Baldwin rejoins us. He's the co-author with Dwight and Rhonda Hall of the brand new book, Conversations with Spirits of the Southwest. I'm Scott Colborn, and with me live in the studio here is Colleen and Jim. We are enjoying Jack Reacher coffee, and it's a great day. Oh, look at this. Who's this guy that just walked in? Grab a microphone here. Anyone will do. He, he looks pretty cool in those shades. <laughs> yeah. Bend down here. Do I, do I look mysterious? You do. Yeah, you look like you just came back from the Great White North, Ed Rumbaugh. Yes, I had my own unexplained adventures, except they weren't that unexplained. I could see the weather coming, and uh, I drove into a blizzard in Fargo, North Dakota. <laughs> I, I loved your, your comments that you and Nancy made about that trip. This was an epic adventure. It was insanity <laughs> to, to plan a trip to Fargo in the dead of winter. And... On a serious note, uh, God bless the members of Nancy's family that were in a separate vehicle that were involved in a crash outside of Des Moines. We wish them a full recovery. And they're doing that. They're doing quite well. Some of them are already back here in Lincoln. Other ones are due back possibly this week. Good. So, And you're having a great show today. Wow. I was there in 94 uh, for the Jim. conference for Jim Goodall. And great, great stuff. So keep on going. Okay. <laughs> we will keep on going. Thank you so much. That was Ed Rumbaugh, and uh, he just referenced the conference in 1994 that we were introduced to uh, Jim Goodall and his work, and it's uh, great to have Jim back with us today. Jim, uh, back in the well, old... De- Go ahead, sir. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm delighted to be here, but I, I would like to just say one thing. My favorite nephew is listening. I'd like to say hi to Matthew Romstead. He's in Ohio. Hey, Matthew. <laughs> okay. Okay. You wanted. You had a question. <laughs> yeah, Jim. Uh, so back in the old days, you could get a lot closer to Area Fifty One 
with all these spooky aircraft than you can today. And in fact, you did so. Well, we can, we can thank William Jefferson Clinton uh, when he was president, putting both Whiteside's Mountain off limits for the safety of the general public and a place we call Freedom Ridge. I had a, uh, I, I helped Glenn Campbell, not the singer, but the Area 51 research <laughs> guy in, in Rachel. Um, when we were looking for a better vantage point, and he'd, uh, he'd go out hiking every day, and he lived at Rachel, so he was out there. He was in the environment all the time. But I remember the day that we uh, literally drove over this uh, mound of dirt they had blocking a, uh, a dirt road. And we went up, and then we found our way up to the, the, the top of free, what we call Freedom Ridge. And we were listening on the radio, and this, and this is before they started encrypting it. And he said... My God, they said, this is, this is the security guys, Wackenhut and Air Force Security at Area 51. So, oh my gosh, is, they're driving. Oh, my God, they're up at the top of, of that mountain. There's two cars up. This would be like a damn drive-in theater. we got to do something about it. I mean, they got really, really excited. And they eventually, they eventually took the, uh, the two vantage points away. Top of Whiteside, you were 13 miles to the flight line. Uh, Freedom Ridge, uh, you were about uh, eight or nine miles from the uh, flight line. If you're there in the morning, the sun's to your back. Uh, the heat hasn't, uh, you know, started causing everything to ripple. It was a great vantage point. And, you know, the, the first time I went up to Whiteside, I was with John Lear. Mm-hmm. And John has had always had real bad feet, so I had to carry all the water. I had I had two gallons of water, which weighs on a lot. And you know, I'm 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 a little bit overweight, and I'm a former smoker. But we went up. We we started at four thousand feet, and then top of White Sides it is I think it's sixty two hundred, and it's all broken volcanic rock. Uh, real bare to go up there. And I spent the night up there a couple times. Matter of fact, um, I convinced my friend uh, Stu Brown, who at the time was the uh, senior technical writer for Pop- Popular Science, to do a piece on Area Fifty One. And there's a picture on the on the front cover of the uh, pop side of Area 51 at night, and it was about a 20 minute exposure, and it was about 15 degrees on top of the mountain that night. It was cold. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that anymore. They've taken it away. And since also since since 9/11, uh, you know they they don't play games anymore. I was I was out near Rachel. Was it? Uh, last spring, uh, about a year ago, uh, with a buddy of mine. And we, we drove down, we went down the 10-mile uh, uh, road that comes, as you come down Han- from Hancock Summit into Chippewa Valley, there's a road that goes, it's the back way into Area 51. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there's also a road that goes to the bombing range just uh, south of Rachel. And they... Uh, We've gone down there, and then there's there's a turnoff that goes into the groom mine, the back road. We turned off there. We weren't we weren't back there more than about five minutes, and we see this white four wheel drive four door pickup come to and down the same road. So we knew we knew that we had been spotted, or we tripped a sensor. So we did a 180. As we came back, we waved at him. We just kept on going, um, but it's. 
they've 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 gone out of their way to uh, not to cooperate. Uh, during the same trip, it was I guess it was Stu Brown and I. We went to uh, TTR Tonopah Test Range to the to the fence line. I've been at the fence line there twenty times. That's where I photographed the first place I ever photographed an F one seventeen. There's like. And the first time I photographed one, it was like seeing it, being 12 years old, seeing your first naked girl. I mean, I, my whole body was just <laughs> trembling. But the last time I was there, the Janet flight was coming in. And next thing I knew, everything, everything in stick, and, and t- instead of taking a long final, they were doing short finals uh, eight miles away so we couldn't see anything. So they've, they've become a, a lot more skittish with people on the fence line and you know, people going near the, you know, the boundaries of area 51. It's not as much fun as it used to be. Um, and they've taken away the, the real good vantage points. You can still see area 51. If you want to hike, take a hike up to the top of Tikuvu peak, uh, instead of being, you know, 12 or 13 miles away, you're 30 miles away. Uh, but you can see the base and unless you have a real, real long lens, it's not going to do you any good. Mm-hmm. So in that base um, has been developed, test flown, evaluated, uh, a number of exotic aircraft. There is a, a gentleman that lives in the Summerlin area of Las Vegas. From his deck, um, almost nightly, he's been videotaping uh, incredible stuff going on. Uh, and it it is not uh, airplanes because you can you can see those easily on the uh, mm-hmm. the film. Um, they are not uh, uh, flares uh, supported by by parachutes. Uh, these are really exotic, what are probably craft, and the illumination that we're seeing is probably the propulsion system, not so much the the you know the running operational lights. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you have you Jim um, ever been told by anybody to not talk about this stuff? Uh, well, or I, I, could I've you could you even I... talk about it if you'd been warned off? Oh no. no. <laughs> When I, when I when I was activated for Desert Shield and Desert Storm, I had uh, I had five years active duty. I had a ten year break, and then I had twenty one years as a traditional weekender with the Minnesota Air Guard. So I'm a retired Air Force Master Sergeant today. Thank you, sir. But I when when I was activated for actually I volunteered uh, for activation. I went to get my permanent Pentagon pass because I was working on a guard bureau, which was. Uh, the main offices are there in the Pentagon. As I went to get my uh, permanent um, Pentagon pass, the the lady who was in charge of security said, well, we can't issue one. I said, why is that? She said, there's a flag on your clearance. Whoa. I had an above top secret clearance. I had to have the same, as I was the wing historian, I had to have the same class, same security as my boss, who was a one star. So I, I knew who the problem was. So I called up a gentleman named Pete Ames. He was deputy director for program security for special projects. 
and I called him up. And he said, you know, Pete, this is Jim Goodall. I said, you're screwing with my uh, clearance. Oh, no, no, we're not. I said, yes, you are. You're the only entity that could. Uh, you have some free time. He said, yeah, 115 this afternoon. So at 115, actually about 1 o'clock, I go up to uh, the um, <laughs> fifth floor in the D ring. It was it was uh, 5D1 156. I think it was a room number. And it was, it was nothing there, just a, uh, a door with a cipher lock on it and a buzzer. Uh, and then just the uh, 5D156 was the room number. I think they've changed all the room numbers now. I pressed the buzzer and the door opened. And I'm in uniform. At the time, I was a tech sergeant. And there was a uh, young lady, enlisted type, uh, at the desk. And I said, hi, hi, I'm Jim Goodall. I'm here to see Pete Ames. And I... And her jaw almost hit the floor. He said, Jim Goodall? I said, yeah. I said, well, I'll let Pete know you're here. So I went and sat down. And I, there was a parade of guys coming through, both in uniform and in civilian clothes. Hey, you want to see what Jim Jim Goodall's here? My God, said, said, that Goodall guy's here. I mean, it was just it was going on for about 15 minutes. Pete finally calls me into his into a conference room that I know was, was videotaped and wired with another agent. And he told me, and he said, I said, I don't like the questions you're asking. And I said, Pete, as an American citizen and a patriot and a taxpayer, if I ask my government a question and it's not classified, I demand an answer. And he's holding my F-117 book I did with Bill Sweetman. It was the very first book on the F-117 mm -hmm. and allowed me to be featured on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, he said, "When I uh, he said when I saw your F-117 book, I wanted to put you on active duty, uh, charge you with espionage." And I stood up, and I threw an autographed copy of the book on the table, made out to Pete Ames, and said, "Pete, there's Exhibit One. Charge me." And he hemmed and hawed, and that's when he said, "I don't like I don't like you ask, asking questions." I said, "There isn't a person in this building, be the Pentagon, that's going to stop me from asking questions of my government." I said. I, I can't be intimidated. I could be killed, but if that would happen, then it would, you know, I'm, I'm not the type that would take my own life. Everybody knows that. Uh, I know too many people in the media uh, to let something happen to me, so it's not going to happen. I have no fear of Pete Ames. I have no fear of our federal government as it comes to me asking questions. I said, I said, it's my job as an American taxpayer to challenge my government, to ask questions of my government. And and neither you nor anybody else in this in this odd-shaped building will make me stop short of killing me. And I said, you don't like what I'm doing? That's just too bad. I'm going to continue to do it. And we went on and on. And he said something about his airplanes. He said, Pete, you don't own a damn thing. Everything that gets out in Area 51 and other places are those those." programs that those artifacts are owned by the American taxpayer. You don't own crap. You're just a custodian to make sure it's maintained, whatever it is. And it's, and if it is uh, classified, then it's protected. But if it's not classified, I demand the truth. And you know why I'm, you know, you know why I'm, I've done so well on the F-117? Because in 1968, when I started asking questions on the Blackbirds, the official policy was not to cooperate. So because you didn't cooperate, I started digging. 
And the more I dug, the more I found out, the more I found out, the deeper I dug. And it's going to, it's going to continue to stay. It, and my going after the federal government to try to figure out what's going on airplane-wise out in the desert, uh, that'll cease when I cease, when I die. I will continue to, to try to dig and find out stuff any and every way I can. And you can't stop me. You're not going to. And he was pissed. And I stood up. Pete's kind of short. And I, and I stood up, and I'm six foot. Well, not anymore, but I was. <laughs> I looked down on him. I said, Pete, you know what really pees you off about me? And I said, what's that? I said, I'm not afraid of you. And I give him the raspberry. I go, and you know, put my thumb on my nose and wiggle my fingers. And he turned around and walked out of his office. By the time I got to Guard Bureau, the, my flag was off my clearance. And I heard from a buddy of mine that was uh, worked fairly close with black programs. He said, I upset Pete so bad that they sent him home about 15 minutes after I left because his blood pressure had gone through the ceiling. <laughs> so, uh, with, with so, all, Jim, with all respect, you're in uniform. How could you have that conversation with this guy? We were having a, he, he was telling me I couldn't, I couldn't ask questions of my government. I told him, oh, my job is to ask questions of my government, and neither you nor anybody else is going to stop me. He didn't, he didn't like that. <laughs> and, he, and, and I said, there's, there's nothing that's going to stop me. Mm-hmm. The other thing that was kind of sad, and I had, this was a later conversation, he said they, um, they were looking for three reservist historians and two active duty historians to come uh, for, the, for the reservists the Guard or Air Force Reserve to come and do the official history of all the black programs. And my name was on the top of the list of reservists to be uh, activated. And Pete said, we had to redline you. I said, why is that? I said, I'm the most qualified person to do something like this. He said, we know you wouldn't, uh, you you wouldn't violate your, your security but we know we would show you things that would that would you know, your mind would explode to not be able to tell anybody. Now I'm pretty I'm pretty I'm fairly familiar with a lot of stuff that goes on in the desert. But yep. the fact that he said that my mind would explode uh, if you know if I was ex- you know, if I was exposed to what really is going on uh, in the black program arena. Mm-hmm. And this is this is you know like this is this is in uh, 1990. So uh, there's something to it. There's stuff out there. I I honestly believe it. I you know Ben Rich told me, Bob Lazar told me, uh, my buddy Dave told me, my uh, friend who was the enlisted person in the 117s that got stopped at uh, Papoose Lake told me. Uh, and it's just it it makes sense. Yep. It makes sense that you know we're not alone. There's too many. There's too many things. Tom Long, who I believe you know, uh, was a photo analyst with Stat uh, out of Beale for a long time, and he was uh, his job was both looking at SRU2 and uh, satellite imagery. And he looked at he looked at some Polaroids that were taken at uh, I think it was Gulf Breeze of some UFOs, and he said there's no way that that could be faked. It was taken with a Polaroid. A Polaroid has no you can't alter a Polaroid because there's no negative, it photographs what it sees. 
and he analyzed the light pattern on uh, on this look like a top hat type of craft mm-hmm. uh, in your Gulf Breeze, which is in your Pensacola. And he said, "There's there's no way. There's there's no indication. There's a crane anywhere. You know that would have been very very obvious." Um, where the light was, he said, it, it's, it, it, can't be, it can't be Photoshopped because it was on a Polaroid. Mm-hmm. And today, if someone gives you a photograph and, you know, I'm, you know they, there's a picture of me in bed with Melon Monroe and it looks real, you can't believe anything you see in a photograph. But in a Polaroid, that is something you can't alter. Maybe today you could, but not back when the, when the photos were taken. Jim, we're, so, we're, 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 we're almost out of time. I want to ask you one more question here. And, and sure. again, it's been too long. I really appreciate, underline, really appreciate you taking time to be here with us. So my, my final question. Anytime. Thank you, Jim. We, we, we will do this again. My final question Good. is uh, to paraphrase a comment from uh, an infamous guy, Bill Cooper, who no matter what people say about Bill Cooper, he, he said to me something that was very telling. He said, the argument about whether or not this extraterrestrial stuff is real or not, the United States intelligence agencies and the military have used this as a tool to inform and disinform other people in the world. So, Jim, I liken this to a great big game of five-card stud, and all the big players in the world are there at the table. The United States has got four cards up on the table and that one card down. And I think that one card is the knowledge about some of this technology. Would you agree? Yeah, I would. I would. It just I mean there's 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 too many there's too many things pointing towards things that we can't explain. Way too many things. So Jim, I, and, if I can ask one more question here, we are almost out of sure. time. I know that you've um uh been to and and are familiar with Las Vegas. So I want you to imagine that you're at yep. a table and you've got a million bucks. And the bet is whether or not some of this technology is nut from this earth. And you have a chance to bet on that. How would you make the bet? I'd push it all in. Okay, that's a fair, fair answer. Jim, thanks so much uh, for your service. Hey, it, was my, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much for, for the, all the wonderful stuff that you've written for taking time now 25 years later to be with us, and that's my fault, not yours. So uh, my best to you and your family, to uh, your relative Matthew who's listening, and uh, hope we can do this again. Me too, me too. You have, a, you have a wonderful day, and I hope you don't freeze. We're supposed to have snow in Tucson on Monday, by the way, just so you don't feel too bad. <laughs> But later in the week, it'll be it'll be in the seventies, so we're okay. So you have a wonderful day. I enjoy every bit of this. Let's do it again. Our special guest today has been Jim Goodall, the aviation and science writer, author of now uh, twenty five, twenty six books. And you'll find Jim Goodall on Facebook. 
His last name is spelled G-O-O-D-A-L-L. And you'll find his books um, all over the place. Lockheed SR-71 Blackbird, The Illustrated History of America's Legendary Mach 3 Spy Plane. That came out in 2018. The U.S. Navy's Fast Attack Submarines Volume 1, Los Angeles Class 688. That came out in 2017. 2017. A pictorial History of the B-2A Spirit Stealth Bomber. That was released in 2016. And then the classics, SR-71 Blackbird from 1995 and the F-117 Stealth in Action from 1991. Jim and Colleen, what are you both doing for the rest of the day? We go home and stay warm. <laughs> right out the snow tonight. We got more snow coming for Lincoln we got tonight. more snow coming. It's starting to cloud over a little bit more. It is. And so... Thank you so much for listening. Um, if you folks would like to make a donation to help support this kind of uh, freewheeling conversation, and if you've been around since 10 o'clock, or at least since about 1040 listening to Jim Goodall, why wouldn't you want to support this? Uh, I want you to stop and think about what you've heard Jim talk about today. That is worthy of a donation. 402-474-5086, extension 1, or online at kzm.org. Thank you so much for listening. And Jim and Colleen, thank you for being here. What a great show. I just love Blackbird stories. Jim Goodall, fabulous, fabulous conversation. Wow. Mm-hmm. Stay tuned for Vic coming up with Mesoterra. We're going to have a lot of fun here at KZM. Keep listening. And until next week, Walk in beauty.